invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Ephesians. That's in the New Testament. And if you'd like to use the red Bibles and the chairs around you, you'll find our passage this morning on page 976. Jumping back into our series here, looking into the book of Ephesians, this letter that Paul wrote a long time ago to a people far away, and yet so applicable for us today in such a different context, and yet the truths are God's truths and as much true for them as they are for us now as well. So listen as I read to you from chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray together. (coughs) Our Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your word, and we pray that today, through the work of your Spirit, opening our hearts and our minds, we would see the guilt that we were in before you worked in our hearts. The grace that you have extended to us through the Lord Jesus Christ and the gratitude that we are to have as a result. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was in fifth and sixth grade, uh, myself and a number of my friends in our little town in Indiana uh, were put into a class uh, for probably there were probably about a hundred or 150 of uh, people in those grades in our little town uh, that went to this class. It was called Cotillion. Uh, it was a class that is you don't hear about that very much anymore, but it was a class where uh, people could be they could send their young people to learn manners and etiquette, uh, learn about how to sit around a table and which silver pieces of silverware to use, and and they also uh, taught us a certain kind of formal dance steps. So we learned the fox trot and the waltz and the cha cha cha, and uh, it was uh, horrendous. <laughs> and at the end of each season. Um, At the end of each season of that class, there was a formal ball. And uh, all of the young 5th and 6th grade boys and girls would be gathered into this room. The the boys would be on one side of the room, the girls on the other side of the room. And then uh, we were all handed these little booklets with a pencil. And at the announced time, the boys were summoned to get up and to go over to the other side of the room. And they were to ask the young ladies 
uh, if they would be willing to dance with them at the formal ball. And if so, we would write their names in our books and they would write our names in their books. And we would go along until we had uh, the number of dances filled up for our books. And I'll tell you, it was a horrific experience. And the more I've thought about it, it was, it, it was just nerve-wracking. Uh, if, if, if you are ever in charge of something like that, never put the young people into that kind of a role. It was incredibly uh, anxiety-producing in the young people. Because everybody, in some way, felt uh, insufficient and inferior. And, and, and it made everybody feel like you were worth something if you could get your book filled up with names uh, either with the girls that you wanted to dance with or the boys that you wanted to dance with. It, it put an emphasis on valuing ourselves based on how popular we were, how many people we knew, how good of a dancer perhaps the other person thought that we would be. I would assert to you this morning that that mindset is very prevalent in the church. Even among solid Christian people who understand and believe in the gospel of God's grace. It is so easy for that mindset to slip into our hearts and our minds. Uh, regularly we treat God as if we need to be good enough. We uh, need to live a good enough life, at least try as hard as we can, so that we can get our name written in his spiritual book. And I think that this mindset creeps into our thoughts and our hearts in notable ways. It shows up in notable ways. We live life with a lack of joy. And I don't mean that we don't occasionally have days of grief and discouragement. That's true for all of us. But we know what it means to live with just a, a real lack of joy at the very core of who we are. Or it shows up in another way where we are people who have a level of anger just always simmering below the surface. Now, I don't mean that we don't sometimes get angry and are mad about things. That, that's always going to be the case. And there's even a righteous anger that we should have about injustice that we see in this world. But we know what it means to live with not just that kind of anger, but a constant, steady, sometimes vicious anger that lashes out so easily. Or it evidences itself in lives that are powerless against our sin. It's nothing new. God's people have been struggling to understand and to believe God's grace throughout history. Paul brought it up in almost every single letter that he wrote to Christians in the first century. And he certainly brought it up here in this letter, the letter to the Christians living in and around the city of Ephesus in the first century. And as we come now to chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, this, by most people's estimations, is one of the most clear and powerful explanations of the gospel of God's grace and mercy to us through Jesus Christ. 
So what I want us to see today is what Paul tells us about the guilt that we were in before God came and changed our hearts and the grace of God that came and made us right in God's sight and then the life of gratitude that we are called to live in response. So first of all, what does Paul begin by telling them? Before he tells them about the wonder of God's grace and mercy to them in Jesus Christ, he reminds them of what they were like, the guilt that they were in. He gets that right here at the beginning of chapter 2, verse 1. And you, speaking to the Ephesians, were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. He tells them their status. He's very clear about it. You were dead. Not spiritually sick. You were spiritually dead before I came and changed your hearts. There is a difference between being sick and being dead. When you are sick, there are things that you can do to try to make yourself better. You can go to the doctor, you can take medicine, you can get rest, you can get exercise, you can do all the things that we know that we should be doing in order to get better. But when you're dead, there is nothing that you can do to come back to life. I've shared that with you before as I was in the room when my father passed away. And the very moment when he took his last breath, there was no doubt, my mother, my brother, or I, sitting at the bed, that my father had passed away. He was dead. There was no possibility, no matter what we did, no matter what the doctors did, no matter what any expert would do, there was nothing that could bring him back to life. Paul is saying we were dead. Dead. God gives us pictures of what that looks like throughout the scriptures. And maybe even later this afternoon you could open your Bibles and look at Ezekiel chapter 37. And God gives us a very vivid picture there of what this looks like. He takes the prophet Ezekiel out to a valley and shows him this valley. And this valley is filled with bones. People not only that are dead, but that have been dead for a long period of time. The bones are dry, they're they're brittle, they are sun-bleached. And Ezekiel looks out and God says, Ezekiel, can these bones live? And Ezekiel wisely and rightly says, God, you know whether they can live or not. And God causes life to come into those bones. Flesh, sinews, tendons, and eventually they stand as a mighty army army with the breath of God being breathed into them. And God tells Ezekiel, this is a picture of the people of God. Before I come and change their hearts, they are like those bones, dead. We have the same status as those bones in the valley, dead and without hope. He goes on and talks about not just the status that they have and the guilt that they have, but how they practice that. Because he says... You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. That's a Hebrew idiom. It's a, it's a, a borrowing of a Hebrew, Hebrew phrase, the idea of walking, meaning that how one conducts their life, how they live. He's saying not only were you spiritually dead, but you were also living lives that were characterized by sin. And notice what he says here. We were controlled and influenced by several different things. Look at what he says. Following the course of this world. In other words, that 
teaching and belief of the world that is in contradiction to our God and Creator. We were controlled and influenced by the world. But not just the world. Look at what he says next. Following also the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's that's a phrasing to point to the devil himself. Not only were we being controlled and influenced by the world and the world's values, but he says we were controlled and influenced by the evil one, Satan himself. And then he goes on in verse 3 to tell us one more thing that we were controlled and influenced about influenced by among whom we also went among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Not only were we controlled and influenced by the values of the world and by the evil one himself, but even from within our own flesh, the passions of our body in our mind. Paul is saying here that before God worked in us, our guilt was great. We were controlled and influenced by the world, our own flesh, and the, day, and the devil. And so it's no wonder that he says at the end of verse 3 that our nature is that we were children of wrath. Rightly and fairly deserving God's wrath and punishment and justice. Paul paints a very grim and dark picture here in these first three verses of chapter 2. And he does that so that we will have a greater understanding of how deep our guilt was. Why? Because the more that we understand the guilt that was ours before God changed us, the greater we will see God's grace and mercy to us in Christ. Now before we move to see that grace and mercy, let me just point out to you that even though many people think that becoming a Christian means we have to lose our freedom... Paul says exactly the opposite here. Before God works in our hearts, we are not free. We are bound. We are captivated and influenced by the world and by the devil and by our own flesh and passions of our heart. It is only as God comes and rescues us from our guilt that we understand and have true freedom in Him. And Paul gets at that by giving us perhaps, some, uh, perhaps two of the greatest and most wonderful words in all of the Scriptures. Chapter 2, verse 4, the first two words. But God. You were dead. In your trespasses and sins, you followed and were influenced and captivated by the world and your own flesh and the devil. You were by nature children of wrath, deserving God's wrath, but God. And why would God be interested in me? Paul tells us in verses 4 and 5, but God... Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. God's motive, God's motive for coming and changing us and giving us his grace is nothing less than his love. Because of the great love with which I have loved you. 
It's his character. Paul goes on to explain it. At the beginning of verse 4, he says, He is rich. God is rich in mercy. His mercy is plentiful and he is not miserly with it. He is great in love, Paul says, showing his love to people who do not deserve it. And he is gracious. In fact, three times in these verses, he mentions grace. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us. In Christ Jesus, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Grace, 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 he says. God's motivation is his love and his mercy and his grace. Not only does he not give us what we deserve, but he gives us what we don't deserve. His forgiveness and his love. And Paul says it's immeasurable. He is rich in mercy. He is great in love. He is abundant in grace. And he says in verse 7, he is filled with kindness. This is what motivates God. It's not my efforts. It's not my heritage. It's not my living a good life. It's not even me doing the best that I can. It is God working in us and loving us simply because of his great love and mercy and grace and kindness. And notice Paul says the purpose for it as well. In verse 7. So that in the coming ages... He might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God's purpose in lavishing his grace upon us through Jesus Christ is to display his immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness to us. His purpose is not only that we would understand it, they would show it to us personally, but also that we would then serve as a demonstration of God's abundant and unbelievable grace to a watching world. And notice Paul tells us how God did all of this as well, the provision that he made for us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What Paul is talking about here is what theologians refer to as union with Christ. This is God's provision for us. That God, through faith, as we come in faith, a faith that he gives to us to have, as we come in faith... Believing and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ for the salvation of our souls, the forgiveness of our sins, we are united to Jesus Christ. We are connected to Christ so that all that he deserves to get is given to us. And all that we deserve to get is put on him. And Paul uses three verbs here to give us this sense of union with Christ. All three of these verbs are in the past tense. And they all begin with the same prefix, a little Greek word that means together with. And you can even see that. It comes out in the English here. Even as we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. And raised us up with Christ and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. 
Paul is making it abundantly clear that we have been made alive together with Christ. God has breathed new life into us just like he did Adam in the garden. He has raised us up with him using resurrection language, meaning that the guilt and the power of sin and even death itself are defeated for us. And he has seated us with Christ in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, giving us a new status. No longer are we children of wrath. We are God's very own children. We get all of these blessings through Jesus, through faith in him. And notice two of these won't even be fully realized until the second coming. Being raised with Christ and being seated with him in the heavenly realms. And yet Paul talks about them as so sure and so certain that he uses a past tense verb. It's already happened in a sense and we are waiting for the realization of it in the future. What Paul is saying here is that because of God's love and grace to demonstrate his grace and mercy to us through Jesus Christ, he unites us to Jesus through faith so that we get all of the blessings that Jesus deserved. So, what should be our response What should be the response of a heart that is gripped by this amazing, abundant grace that Paul is talking about? It should be a heart that is filled, overfilled with gratitude. Martin Lloyd-Jones, wonderful pastor and writer and commentary, wrote a a number of commentaries. One of his commentaries or one of his sermons, he he tells a made-up story. And the story goes like this. Imagine a man went to visit a friend of his at the man's home, but the friend wasn't there. And so uh, he let himself into the man's house. And he went into the house and he began looking around in the house and came to the kitchen. And there on the kitchen table were a bunch of papers spread out on the table. And the man noticed on his friend's table there was a bill, a bill that was due to be paid And because this man was such a good friend of his, he decided, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to pay that bill for him. So he took the bill with him, went home and wrote a check and put it into the envelope and then mailed it off to pay the bill. Then Lloyd-Jones asks, how thankful do you think that man would be when he found out that his friend paid the bill for him? Well, it would kind of depend on how big the bill was. If it was the current month's phone bill, he would be pretty thankful. He paid that bill for him and doesn't have to pay that $60 or $100 or two, whatever it is. But what if it was a bill from the IRS for back taxes that were owed, accompanied with a letter threatening to put the man in jail until he could pay? Well, then the man's going to be overwhelmingly thankful that the bill has been paid and the possible detention, the possible imprisonment has now been removed. And Paul is saying here in Ephesians 2 that we owed a bill that we could never pay. There was nothing that we could do to pay it. A debt was owed that was so large that it took no one less than God himself to pay it for us. And that's exactly what he did. Jesus came into the world and he paid 
our debt with his very life of perfect love and obedience. He wiped out the debt that we owed and then credited us with his perfect eternal righteousness so that no more debt is ever possible. What Paul is telling us here is that the more that we understand this, the more that our hearts are gripped and our minds are gripped by it, then we will live lives of radical gratitude. And that's how Paul ends this section. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This verse is probably very familiar to us. And we mostly focus on the idea of good works. But even before we get there, I want you to pay attention to this word that Paul says at the beginning, that we, we are something in God's sight. We are what? God's workmanship. That word in the Greek is poema. It's the word that we get poem from. And in the Greek, it has this sense of being made into something or a work of someone. And it's especially used as a very precious work of art. Do you see what Paul is saying here? Almost as a bridge between this wonderful grace that he is telling us in the verses 4 through 9. And when he's going to talk to us here in just a minute about the response of gratitude we should have in our hearts. He reminds us that now because you are in Christ and been united to Christ. You are God's workmanship. You are his very precious work of art. You are his masterpiece. He has created us and He has worked in us, making us to be His work of art. And Paul says that this work of art that He has created us to be has a purpose. We are, he says, after he says we are His workmanship, we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. We are created for good works. And notice at the end of the, of the verse that we should walk in them. You're meant to see a contrast there from verse 10 back to verse 2. He's saying, now you are God's workmanship. You are His art work. No longer are you to be walking in the sins and trespasses of your past. No longer are you to be walking controlled by the world and the devil and... Uh, your own flesh. Now you are to be walking in gratitude to your heavenly father who has made you his piece of art. He has created us and designed us to be doing good works. And notice if that's not enough. Notice what he says as well. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which, speaking about those good works, God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Not only did God, has God created the good works for us to do, has created us for good works, He's created the good works for us to do. He's prepared those good works for us to do. So what are they? What are the good works that we are supposed to be doing and that God has prepared for us to do? Well, I think there are at least a couple senses of that here. I think if we remember the context of everything that Paul is saying here in these verses and the contrast from what we were like to what we are now, 
One sense of the good works that we are to be doing is simply walking in a life of obedience to the Lord rather than being controlled and influenced by the world and our flesh and the devil. In other words, it goes back to verse 7 that we are to be a demonstration in the way we live our lives of God's grace and mercy to us in Jesus. If you, turn, if you still have your Bibles open and you just turn back one page, you'll be in another letter that Paul wrote to another church, another group of churches, uh, the, the letter that's called the Galatians. And right at the end of this letter in chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, Paul talks about what these good works are that we should be living and demonstrating our love and obedience to our Father. The fruit of the Spirit, he says is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. There's a sense in which we can see these fruit of the Spirit as the good works that we are to be living as God's people and demonstrating what He has done in our lives. That we would be exhibiting more and more in our lives these fruit of the Spirit. So I'd encourage you this week as you meditate on what God has done in your life, how He has brought you from a place of guilt to a place of grace, that your gratitude would be attempting to live out these fruit of the Spirit more and more. And it's overwhelming to look at that list as a whole. Maybe just pick one this week. Pick one to meditate on and to reflect on how you might see that particular fruit of the Spirit evidenced more and more in your life this week, even as the Spirit would enable you to do that. I think it's also appropriate to understand good works in another sense here, and that's maybe the more usual way that we, we think of good works. Things that we do in serving the Lord, ways that we serve Him, glorifying the Lord through our time and our treasures and our Talents. We're reminded of another letter that Paul wrote, 1 Corinthians, where in chapter 12 he talks about God's people as a body. And he says that God's body is made up of lots of different parts. There are fingers, there are toes, there are noses, there are eyes, there are ears. And that all of God's people in this body have a role, just like all of the parts of our bodies have a role. None are indispensable. None can be done away with. All are important and all are necessary. Different responsibilities and uses and functions and roles, but all are needed. And that all of us as God's people are called and equipped to serve Him by doing good works. Now for some of us, those gifts that we've been given, those talents, those abilities, those ways of serving the Lord are more obvious. And for others, maybe we're not sure exactly what that means for us. It doesn't always mean that we'll be asked and called upon to do things we want to do. Not always things that we think we're good at, perhaps. Sometimes we'll need help from our brothers and sisters in Christ to discern how we might serve in the body. But the encouragement that Paul has for us here is that God has called us to serve Him. He has given us time and treasures and talent to serve the Lord. These good works. And He's not only prepared us for them, but He's prepared those good works for us to do. Victor Hugo's Les Miserables is a wonderful, creative, artistic depiction of this 
sense of God's, of our guilt and God's grace and the gratitude that we are to have as a result. You probably know the story very well. Jean Valjean was put into prison as a young man uh, very unjustly and he goes to prison. He goes into what is really a hell hole of a place and he is there for 20 years. And while he's there, he becomes hardened, a hardened criminal. And then because of the unjust suffering that he believes that he has gone through, he decides he's going to live a life of treating other people badly as well. Eventually he's released from prison and sadly he becomes a real criminal when he gets out, believing the system had abused him and so he was going to abuse others in response. At one point in the story, Valjean is brought into the home of a Catholic bishop in the town. The bishop welcomes Valjean into his home, expressing hospitality and warmly welcoming him. And one night after the bishop goes to sleep, Valjean, seeing the silverware of the bishop, steals it and takes off. Eventually, Valjean is caught by the police who bring him back to the bishop's house and tell the bishop, see, we caught your thief. And the bishop looked at Valjean and to Valjean's amazement tells the police, police, this isn't a thief. He was a guest in my home. And I gave him this silverware to take. Oh, and by the way, Valjean, you forgot to take these silver candlesticks with you. The bishop convinces the police and they eventually leave. And there is Valjean standing face to face with the bishop. Confronted with amazing grace. The bishop looks at Valjean and he says this. Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil but to good. It is your soul that I buy from you. I withdraw it from your black thoughts and the spirit of perdition, and I give it to God. Now, Les Mis has been turned into plays and movies, and unless you've read the book, you may not know that the very next chapter after that scene takes place is a chapter that describes an incredible struggle that took place inside of Valjean, a trauma of grace. Hugo says, there came over Valjean a strange, a strange emotion opposed to the hardness he had acquired during the 20 years in prison. And, and Valjean perceived with dismay that the frightful calm which the injustice of his misfortune had conferred on him was giving way. He was conscious that this pardon, this celestial kindness, was the greatest assault and most formidable attack he had ever experienced. And what Hugo is painting for us there is this brilliant picture of how a selfish, self-righteous, angry, hard heart was broken and softened by nothing less than grace. Hugo says towards the end of that chapter that Valjean knew that if he yielded to the grace, he would be obliged to renounce the hatred with which the actions of other men had filled his soul for so many years. And the chapter ends as a mailman is delivering mail to the bishop's home. And there we see Valjean kneeling in submissive, humble, grateful prayer in front of the bishop's house. How much more so for us?
brothers and sisters in Christ. Our guilt is so much greater than Valjean's. Our guilt was not against a bishop, but against the creator of the universe. And how much greater is God's grace to us and more costly than what Valjean received. The grace shown by the bishop cost the bishop some silverware and candlesticks and kept Valjean from going to prison. But the grace that we have received cost nothing less than the body and the blood of Jesus Christ and brought us from death to life. So how much more so should we, being affected by God's grace, be moved to live a life of love and holiness and gratitude? Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word. And we even thank you for the times that it takes us to the guilt that was ours before you rescued us from our condition, redeemed us with your grace and mercy through the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for those places where you bring our guilt to our attention and show us the depth of it. Not that we would wallow in it, Father, but that we would understand and see and believe and trust in your grace evermore. I pray, Father, that as we meditate on that grace and mercy to us that has accomplished all of these things so securely that Paul would speak of them in the past tense, that we would be moved to incredible and radical gratitude. Help us to see that again as we come now to this table. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm read to us now Matthew's account of the Lord's Supper. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. As we reflect on... The words, God's word this morning that come to us through Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians. Uh, there are two words uh, that Paul uh, mentions as he is, is writing to the church in Ephesus. And those words are, but God. But God. Two simple words. But God. And oftentimes over the years as I have um, uh, heard people teach on the Bible uh, and so forth, uh, how to interpret it. When you see the word but, B-U-T. Uh, listen up, because because God is about to say something important through through His Word, uh, and it's even more important here in Ephesians two when it says, "But God." So God is the subject of uh, what Paul is about to communicate. God is the one taking the initiative. God is the one taking uh, the action uh, that we see uh, uh, taking place through the words that Paul communicates to us this morning. And so, as we come to the Lord's Supper, what this has to do uh, with the Lord's Supper, the table this morning, as we come to the table, is that uh, these uh, the Lord's Supper is a visual reminder of 
what Paul is communicating to us through these words, but God, and the things that follow that. That, that we are dead in our sins, but we have been made alive through Christ. Through trusting in his death and his resurrection, we are united to Christ. And that we get life, uh, peace, and reconciliation, forgiveness before God. And we get this not because we deserve it, but it's all of God's grace, all of God's favor to us through Christ. We do nothing uh, to deserve this. It is the gift of God. We do nothing to deserve it. And so no one may boast, but it's the gift of God. We have been saved through Christ and his death and his resurrection as we trust in him. No one may boast. And so as we come to the table this morning, we come in faith knowing uh, that we have peace with God, that our sins have been forgiven, but also that one day there's a future aspect of this. And Jesus alludes to it here in the words that I just read from Matthew, but Paul also alludes to it that we will be raised, we will be seated with Christ in the new heavens and new earth uh, one day at his return. And so this gives us assurance as we take of these elements, as we take of the bread and the wine. We have assurance of these things if we come in faith, trusting in Jesus that our sins are forgiven. And so who comes to the table? Those who are not deserving. Those who cannot boast. Who realize they have nothing to offer. They bring nothing to the table. But who have received God's grace to them through Christ and have received it by faith, trusting in him. Who have been baptized in a church that preaches and proclaims the gospel. Who are members in good standing of a Bible-believing, gospel-believing church. This table that we come to this morning is not Trinity Presbyterian's table. It's not the PCA's table. But it's the table of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's for all those who come and trust in him and are looking to him. Who have received God's grace to them through Jesus Christ. That are not boasting in their own effort but are trusting in Jesus and him only. And so if this describes you this morning, then we invite you to come uh, to the table and take and partake of these elements now. Let me pray for us now. Father, we thank you for the reality that these elements point to. Uh, that we were dead in our sins, that we were unable to save ourselves, that we brought nothing to the table, but through your grace that you have extended to us through Christ we have life. We have forgiveness of sins. And so we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your mercy, that you are rich in mercy, Lord. We pray that you would increase our faith and strengthen us now, even as we partake of this meal. This meal that is a visual, visual reminder to us of what you have done for us through Jesus Christ, through his death and his resurrection. We ask and pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.